faculty are key. There are no successful universities without faculty being on board for them and bringing their best talents and commitment and passions. Welcome to Higher Education Without Borders, a podcast series dedicated to education professionals worldwide. This series is hosted by Dr. Sentel Nathan and Dean Hoke, Managing Partners in Edu Alliance. Each episode is a conversation with thought leaders that will enlighten and provide some new thoughts on critical issues facing higher education. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Welcome to Higher Ed Without Borders, and thank you for tuning in. I'm Dean Hoke in Bloomington, Indiana, and with me is my co-host, Dr. Central Nathan in Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates. Central, how are you doing today? And would you please introduce our special guest? Uh, Dean, I'm doing well. And joining us today is uh, Dr. Mariette Westerman, Vice Chancellor of New York University, Abu Dhabi, located in the United Arab Emirates, where she oversees all its academic and administrative affairs. Prior to this role, uh, Mariette was the Executive Vice President of the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, where she worked for about a decade and uh, launched initiatives to promote the value of the humanities and the liberal arts, strengthen community colleges, encourage graduate education reform, renew preservation of cultural heritage around the world, and support scholars and artists at risk. Prior to the foundation, she was on the faculty at uh, New York University, first as the director of uh, the Institute of Fine Arts, and then as the first provost of NYU Abu Dhabi. And before joining NYU, she served at the Clark Art Institute. And uh, prior to that, she taught art history at Rajas University. Marriott, as someone who has been involved in the planning and implementation of NYU Abu Dhabi from its very uh, start, from the formative years and months, and today, reflecting back after so many years on how far NYU Abu Dhabi has come, uh, what do you see as the major essential ingredients for the success of this uh, amazing story, particularly uh, the, the vision of uh, the leaders on both sides of this collaboration? Well, Sentel, thank you very much for having me. First of all, it is so great to talk with you again after all these years when I first met you back here in Abu Dhabi in 2007. So NY Abu Dhabi is truly a partnership, a partnership between a major research university, NYU, and the government of Abu Dhabi. And this partnership was born very much of a joint vision of two leaders, President John Sexton of NYU at the time, who asked me to lead the startup moment. And uh, at the time, the Crown Prince of Abu Dhabi, now the president of the UAE, Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed. And together, they really dreamed up in conversation and in consultation with so many people, and that was important, a new kind of university that both of them saw as needed for a rapidly globalizing age. They saw a very special opportunity to create a kind of university that didn't already exist. It would be based in Abu Dhabi, but grant degrees of NYU, a vital point. These are actual New York University degrees we grant here. 
And to create that university here in Abu Dhabi, we would recruit students and faculty and staff from the region, of course, also from the country, but also from around the world. And we would build a New York quality education, a United States style kind of education in a part of the world where there did not fully exist yet, or at least not driven by a major research university. At the time, NYU was about, in any kind of rankings, number 60, 65 in the world. Today, it's more like 25, 26. But uh, we didn't have a kind of institution like that here. And what were the ingredients that attracted Abu Dhabi, you would have to ask yourself. And for Abu Dhabi, under the leadership, strategic leadership of the Crown Prince at the time, we were a fast-track ticket to creating a talent magnet university that would bring uh, and, and educate, of course, the greatest talent from within the UAE, but bring it together with people from countries of all continents and all backgrounds. For NYU, it, is, it would mean accelerating what was already a remarkable transformation of the university into the first truly global university. I know that sounds like a wild claim, but really, if you think about it, what NYU is today with three major degree granting campuses in New York, in Abu Dhabi and in Shanghai, and with 13 other very serious study and research sites uh, where students and faculty go on all continents. I don't think there's another university on which the sun never sets like NYU. And that was the vision that uh, President Sexton and Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed shared and that they were willing to lean into. That's of course great. You have to have a founding vision and it has to be really clear about what each of the parties brings to the table and what the benefits are for each of the parties. But after you start building that, the key element surely is trust. Trust that you're both committed to what is ultimately a mutual education project. It isn't just a great big American university coming to tell people here what to do or Abu Dhabi demanding something that wouldn't be true to NYU. You do it together. And um, that was the key element. And that trust has been maintained all the way through. And the trust was born not only of the vision, but of the commitment that these leaders made to ourselves and our institutions and teams made to ourselves that we would never, ever blink on quality. If you can't do it well, if you can't do it true to your values, in our case, if you're NYU, you shouldn't be doing it at all. And we've really stuck to that. Yeah. Just a quick follow-up, Mariette. Uh, I'm sure as, as uh, ma many as the champions, and there were also skeptics on both sides, um, mm -hmm. did uh, anything uh, kind of exceed your expectation when you return back, um, uh, you know, from uh, what you were expecting, uh, because I can say for myself, it, a lot of things exceeded my expectation. But uh, up close, how do you see uh, what has panned out and what has come out? I think that's a great question, because surely there were lots of tripwires for us. And we planned very carefully, always involving our faculty. Faculty are key. There are no successful universities without faculty being on board for them and bringing their best talents and commitment and passions. And 
that was always a little bit of a worry for me. We were making big promises. We believed in them. I always thought and I knew that we would get great students because working with our partners where we were able to recruit around the world and really recruit students regardless of their ability to pay or their backgrounds, as long as they had the desire to build a new kind of society through their education, a better world, and as long as they were really had a lot of academic accomplishment and promise from within the context that they'd come from, we would accept them and bring them here. And so that was an incredible thing. And so many students go with like that, or potential students go without education in the world. So I knew we could recruit these students. In fact, the first 150, we thought we were going to get 50. We got 150, even in the first year, because people were so excited about this entirely untried university. It was an amazing thing. But as I saw those great students come in, my big worry was, will we have the faculty, not just the faculty from within NYU who were already interested in this, but eventually the faculty we would recruit here, would they be world-class like these students? Could they keep up with the demands of these incredibly curious, passionate, knowledge-creating students? And so when I came back and decided to come back in 2019, one of the things I really looked at was the quality of the faculty and the quality of the research and these more than 65 labs and centers in research across all disciplines from engineering to the arts, whether uh, that measured up. And I was really very pleasantly surprised. And it told me something about the power of the model we had created, that we really had convinced faculty from all around the world with great other opportunities and jobs that this was worth coming here. And I also realized that it meant that our government partners had not blinked on quality and had stood with us in matters like academic freedom, which were so important to convince some of the skeptics of. Thanks, Maria. Dean? You know, in some ways, Maria, New York and Abu Dhabi are about as different as you can possibly imagine in terms of age, size, etc. But in some ways, they're also similar, I think, because of nationality and there's other certain aspects. I've lived in both cities and there's, I see this yin and yang, this, this whole difference that you feel and the similarities on this. How does NYU respond to that in terms of those differences and similarities, particularly in offerings, design, recruitment, which is, I would think, vastly different at NYU New York versus NYU Abu Dhabi. But can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. I love your question, Dean, because since I grew up in the Netherlands and went to the United States for higher education and then state, to me, America always looked very young. And you've just called the United States and New York a little bit old. And of course, they are old compared to a country that just celebrated its 50th anniversary last year as a formerly constituted union, the UAE. So the UAE is young. And you could say that as NY Abu Dhabi, now active here for 15 years, 12 years fully in operation, but 15 years of being engaged on the ground, we've been part for, you know, almost a third of the history of the country. We're growing with it and with this magnificent capital city that we're in. And in that sense, this is an analogy I've always loved to make. We are a lot like NYU itself. When NYU was created in New York in, in 1831, in 1831, 
And it was sort of in downtown Washington Square, which today is this bustling, dense part of the city, old part of the city. There was almost nothing there. Just north of there, it was all fields, bleaching fields, cows. A grid had been laid out for the city, but it hadn't been filled in at all. It wouldn't for another 50 to 80 years. And NYU was created as a, as a private university in the public service. To this day, that is our mantra. And in that way, NYU grew as a non-sectarian, non-denominational university with the city to educate sort of the merchant class and the bureaucratic class, the, the leaders of the city, for the city. And now if you think about NYU Abu Dhabi, I say of it what we say of NYU. In NYU. At NYU we always say, and used to say, NYU is a university in and of the city, in and of the world, because people from more than 200 countries have been born and live and come to New York. It's the most cosmopolitan place on earth in many ways. Well, interestingly, NYU Abu Dhabi, I think, as we've evolved it, and as our vision for it really is, is in and of Abu Dhabi, in and of NYU, and in and of the world as well. Here too are citizens from 200 countries living peaceably, working together, creating a society. We come with very different ambitions from different countries, different reasons. It isn't all some kind of utopia, it's not what I'm trying to say, but it is a working, living city that's very actively making itself a country that's actively trying to become a knowledge-driven society rather than an oil-dependent one. And uh, being part of that dynamic transformation is a lot like the way NYU has acted in New York. Of course, in other ways, it's totally different in that when NYU came along in New York, Columbia University already existed. Other major institutions were already on the ground there, whereas Abu Dhabi is still building a lot of them. Some of the most important museums in this part of the world, the Louvre Abu Dhabi, opened only recently. Others are being built and created. Uh, major research enterprises, major healthcare facilities are just coming online, just as we are growing with the city. And one thing Abu Dhabi did not have was a major international university grounded in the liberal arts, in the liberal arts education, which is very fundamental to NYU's core faculty of arts and sciences, although NYU also has great professional schools, which is another thing that we may be able to contribute here. When you looked at those universities, they're good universities that were here. The, the country has a vision for education, educating all of its citizens and many other people who live here. But they did not necessarily recruit their students actively from outside the country. They did always recruit faculty, but not typically into American-style tenure and tenure-track positions. And so one of the first things we did when we got going here in 2007, 2008, is agree with NYU in New York and with our partners here that it is possible to have tenure at NYU Abu Dhabi in the way that that protects academic freedom, freedom of inquiry, and gives you real um, the ability to build major research enterprises over many years here. Otherwise, you can't recruit top faculty. We all know that. So that is probably a healthy difference where we took something from our NYU-ness and brought it here to strengthen not only NYU Abu Dhabi, but generally thinking, I think, about education and the meaning of universities to a civil society and, a, and kind of a knowledge-driven 
uh, economy and society. Thank you. Central? Uh, uh, Marietta, we, we appreciate that this kind of international cross-cultural, cross-boundary collaboration ca can never be easy. And uh, we don't think it was, uh, it would have been easy for you uh, on both sides. Uh, the, the, our, our question is, looking at the outcomes today and probably projecting a few decades from now, do you think uh, these outcomes are worth the investment of so much efforts and resources on both sides? Particularly, uh, I, I, could, can you talk, uh, talk to us about uh, NYU Abu Dhabi's contributions to the development of Abu Dhabi uh, today and also as you project over the next decades? Besides the talent we attract and retain here, students as well as faculty, I think the other major contribution to the society is that of a world-class research university. Uh, trying to build a major research enterprise in engineering, in the sciences, in the social sciences, the humanities and the arts is no small matter for any country or any place. And I think what you get with Emu Abu Dhabi and what is the contribution to the country is that the enormous capacities of New York University with its 8,000 or so faculty to start up research, set agendas, help vet possibilities, recruit other researchers and so forth into research centers is of enormous value. To give you an example of how many of the research centers that we have are right aligned with the vision of this country, which is also a beautiful vision for what the world needs to be doing. Climate science, uh, this country has major commitments to net zero by uh, 2050. They're hosting COP28 next year. They're really very energetic on this. We have a whole range of environmental modeling and sustainability products and services research entities that we could establish very quickly. We have wonderful centers for the science of cities. The planet is urbanizing, the UAE and the region are urbanizing. Again, we bring transportation capacities, smart cities capacities there. We have an extremely evolved public health research center that of course got a further lift, but also was a major contributor to thinking about pandemic management with major properly vetted uh, cohort studies of Emirati citizens contributing data, the better to ensure healthy futures for all who live here. We have established uh, an economics department that is ranked fifth in all of Asia, all of Asia from Tokyo to Tel Aviv within eight years of its establishment, an astonishing contribution. Economics is critical to modeling uh, new kinds of development and transformation, the future of work and all these other issues that are just as important in the UAE as they are in the world. Our arts programs are truly in and off NYU. NYU is of course one of the great art schools uh, in the world and New York is one of the great art cities and we are growing with that evolving arts ecosystem through our amazing performing arts center that's written up in the New York Times, Forbes, all the time and people come online and in person to it all the time. Our art gallery supports this growing ecosystem of artists in the region. Our MFA supports it. So you can see that research and teaching really integrate for us and are right aligned with all of these 
agenda items for the country, and we'll just keep on doing it. Our first homegrown PhD here will open in a year or two, we think, in astrophysics and space science. This country is the first to really nail its first mission to Mars on the first go, going into orbit. That's the kind of forward-looking energy that we can lean into here, but also really contribute to. Harriet, I'd like to go back to something you said earlier, and, and particularly about the arts and liberal arts. You come from a traditional, what I would consider a traditional liberal arts background. I mean, your bachelor's, your master's, your PhD is in, I believe, in the history of art. And you are a member of the American Philosophical Society, humanities, etc. And what my question really has to do is that, as you know, particularly in the States and maybe in other places, liberal arts is not nearly as well understood. There's, there's been, bluntly, I think, an attack on liberal arts in the United States. And I think other countries don't totally get it at times. They, they have it go in a different direction, yet NYU seems to go down that path. I'd like it for you to talk a little bit about that liberal arts concept, if you would, and why is it important, and particularly in a country like the UAE or the Middle East? It is a fascinating reality that the liberal arts college model, which is so central to American higher education and that made American higher education so strong, indeed is under a lot of attack because people say you should be focusing on tech only, you should be focusing on your first job. And the irony is that in a country like Abu Dhabi, people embrace the idea of the liberal arts. And you see other colleges like ours having been created in places like Singapore, Amsterdam, uh, in, in, in Japan, places that haven't historically had them, Shanghai. So there must be something to it. And that's a quite recent movement. So I would put it sort of this way. It's very important to explain to people what liberal arts means without getting too hung up on what you call it. But just to make it more explicable, which I spent a lot of time doing here in the early days and continue to do, I say to people, let's drill down on those words for a second. What does liberal arts really mean? Well, liberal in that term doesn't really mean liberal in a, the sense of politics or a lifestyle disposition. And as soon as I say that, the tension drains out of the room. People are really happy to hear that. I say, no, liberal is that word for free, that, that Latin word that talks about your mind as one of the greatest gifts you have received on coming into this world. And it needs to be given the freedom to think and to live its full humanity and to explore ideas and figure out what you're about and how you can best live your life and contribute to the best of your abilities and to the best of what you will be given. And those early years of, of advanced adolescence and young adulthood, that's precisely when you shouldn't be locked into a single thing, when you still at regular life expectancies, still have 40, 50, 60, maybe 70 years to go. And so then I say, and think about arts. Arts is the translation of artes, the plural of the Latin word for skills and for specially honed skills that can be in any field. It can be in the arts, as we now think of them, but also in mathematics, in science, 
in politics. It can be about social skills or political skills, indeed. And we start to talk about it that way. People understand that we absolutely believe in educating in a major and maybe a minor, so expertise in depth. But that what also matters about a liberal education in that sense is breadth and casting your eyes and across the whole field of human endeavor that's encapsulated on all these disciplines that we get locked into from the sciences to the humanities and engineering and so forth. And pushing out your horizons to see both histories of these concepts, but also possibilities and futures. You don't have to be a scientific expert to benefit from taking a course in science. And in fact, you don't have to be, even if you're a scientist, you will benefit from something on the history of science, for example. So when you explain all of this, people start understanding that a liberal arts education, when defined that way, really sets you up not just for your first job. A first job out, a good outcome of college is important. It's politically important, but it's important for the development of a young person, I think, as well. But it will not be the last job you'll ever have, if you're lucky, and it won't likely be your final profession. This is a really personal thing for me because I came from the Netherlands where I would have been one track into one discipline in a university back in the 1980s. That's how you were educated. I would have become a lawyer. I think I would have become a perfectly good lawyer, but I was very curious and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I toyed with astrophysics, with theater, with journalism. I was an undergraduate political history major but I discovered art history. And what I do today has precious little to do with art history. I lead a university. And I think it's a liberal arts education that set me up for what looks kind of like a hopscotch career, if you look at my CV that uh, Sentel described at the beginning of this, of this cast. Well, I must agree with you. I think you would have been an excellent lawyer. You make a very good case. <laughs> Sentel. Uh, Mariette, many of our listeners are higher education leaders from around the world. Uh, and uh, we always try to tap into the personal side of our uh, guests. So could you share with the listeners some of the leadership lessons from two, two angles? One, from NYU's international experiences, international campuses and the centers you have. How, what kind of lessons may leadership lessons may be relevant to them and on the other side you personally had a lead role in in establishing nyu abu dhabi in the early days and a very very unique privilege and the experience for any university president is to come back after a decade to once again lead the well-developed uh, university and the campus once again so as as, as uh, personally as a leader and an individual what uh, what does this uh, journey mean to you in the last 15 years? Uh, so it's it's both from an NYU's perspective and from your perspective. Thank you so much for tying together the personal and the institutional. There is no question that when you're asked, as I was in 2007, to lead an advanced team, not to lead the ultimate university, but to lead an advanced team to figure out how to make a new university of a particular kind in a part of the world that you don't know, but seems very ambitious and dynamic, um, that is an incredible privilege. You used the word correctly. I was not a particularly experienced leader at the time. I'd been a 
dean-led, I call myself, I was a dean, but a dean-led of a small graduate school, distinguished and all, for six years. And then to really be asked to do this is really incredible. And so we opened in 2010, it was a success. And I think a lot of the success, as I may have mentioned earlier, had to do with how we came into this. I think that the leadership of NYU at the time, president and provost, and the colleagues I brought with me and recruited with me from in and outside NYU, I looked for a stance and I wanted myself to have a stance that understood that this was a mutual education project. We had to come into it humbly, but also show what we could contribute as something that didn't already exist here. So I kept always that double lens onto what are the interests of NYU, this global university that I love and of which I'm a graduate, and uh, this country that puts its trust in us because we say we're going to grant these degrees. What can we learn from each other? So when the going gets hard, you have developed a relationship of trust and listening. So then when I came back, um, I realized that it's very different to do a startup, which I was doing back in the day, and that's very different from coming in and then leading the institution and transforming it because we're constantly in still, we're still growing, we're still transforming, we're building our graduate programs, we're building our professional programs, we're expanding our role in the society. Um, and you have to then say, and I had to do this constantly, remind myself, don't just be flattered that they're asking you to come back. Don't do it to be Mariette yesteryear. I told that search committee, if you're looking for some nostalgia, I'm glad that you still like me. That's good and have good memories. But I'm a different person now, nine years on, of running a major grant-making operation uh, for the Mellon Foundation. I have seen a lot in the world, and I can also see that certain things need to change here. And I only wanted to come back if there was more for me to do, to contribute and to continue to build and transform what had become a quite potent institution. So I think there's probably something of a lesson for myself in that, and perhaps also for others, which is, you know, always when taking on a leadership role, think about what it is that you can do with it and make sure that you really want to do it and are fully committed because being a leader is often lonely. Make yourself less lonely in it. Build a leadership team that is totally complementary to you in some ways. And to do that well, and that's something I really saw and learned at Mellon, often sometimes the hard way, it's really important as you then decide, I can do things if I get this and this right, really analyze for yourself and ask others, what do you do well? What do you know how to do well? What don't you know how to do well that actually is needed for the organization that you claim you're going to lead? And what do you think you may be able to learn to do well and get yourself some learning and learn what you may never do well and then build those complementarity skills very diversely in your leadership team and look for it across and up and down the organization. I think that those are sort of skills I learned at Mellon by working with so many universities and also building our own team and transforming the organization in a more strategic direction over those nine years. I think that that meant that I, I, feel, I think that I could not have led Abu Dhabi in that kind of way 10, 12 years ago. So, you know, 
careers are journeys and uh, you have to be able to change with the field and therefore let yourself be changed in a way that you can recognize. And that takes really a lot of input for many people, I think. Well, this will be our last question, but I'd like to go back a little bit to your time in between NYU and you've been talking about that and, and Melon, you were there eight years, eight, nine, nine eight years. plus years. Nine yeah. years. That's a nice career. I mean, and that's a nice long time within one of the great foundations um, in America and possibly in the world. And you were working in a variety of sectors, but quite a bit, I think, in higher education and liberal arts as a part of that. So that means you experienced what? Hundreds, if not thousands, of different schools trying obviously to come up with grand ideas and all kinds of different things. I'd like to go back to what you were talking about earlier in terms of lessons learned and also maybe a little bit about cultures that you went from an NYU environment to a foundation environment back into an NYU environment except in Abu Dhabi. So I assume there were very different styles on things. And at the same time, I think you probably may well have learned a number of things along the way. For our presidents and for our other leaders that are listening throughout the world, can you help them with that quote unquote break going from one industry into another coming back in? It's quite a thing to move from higher education, a university with your tenure and your enormous range of talent all around you who can solve all sorts of questions and problems for you to go to a much smaller organization, the Mellon Foundation, which keeps itself relatively small, 100 people, so that you can push more money out into the world, $325, $350 million a year, and dispose of that well. It's a very different mindset. And initially, I couldn't believe how quiet it was at the foundation. It became a little <laughs> less quiet with me around, let me tell you that. But it was appropriately quiet because we were trying to listen to what people were saying to us. And of course, coming off a job or as a leader for an institution, a university, you have to be a little bit bullish about them. They are the right university. You have to carry that torch if you're NYU, wave that flag, and you're building something. So it all go all the time, and you learn to do that. And there's a value in that, because you want to lead with a positive and hopeful spirit for your people. When you come into a foundation, you also want to be hopeful. I'm a very hopeful and optimistic person. But you can't just come in and think that you know better how all these other people are going to do it. So I brought a little bit of the humility of the mutual education projects in Abu Dhabi. And I said, you know, we should really be listening to what these grantee organizations are saying to us about their conditions and about why some things might work that we want to work on as an arts and humanities foundation. That's what we were working a lot on diversity and inclusion in the academy and in these fields. And so we have the holy fire about this and we want to help people do that work. But you really have to listen to constraints on what people can do and what they're telling you about their environments, their hopes, their challenges, and really try to discern how you can, how can be of the greatest help or contribution to them. And I think this is a really important lesson I learned at Mellon. I think many funders in the world, many big philanthropists, confuse the fact that they have access to these massive resources to distribute and begin to confuse that a little bit with thinking that they somehow have greater knowledge or even wisdom. 
we do tend to have a broader perspective because we see lots and lots of places, but it still doesn't mean we know everything at all. It's a really easy trap to fall into because everyone who comes through the door asking you for resources for this product or that is telling you you're wonderful. They're telling you you're great because they really yeah. are hoping that you will support them. And you can never confuse yourself uh, with that. But I thought that when I came back then, and I think for any leader of a university or college, this is also true. It isn't so different in any organization where you happen to command a leadership position, which means that you have the ability to distribute and allocate resources within your organization. If you're a president, you have to raise more of them and you should take that very seriously. The resource development is critical. It's a major job that you have and you have to embrace it or not do it at all. And so as a chief executive in a role like that, you also have lots of people looking up to you, hoping to get something out of you. So those listening skills, the consultative and learning skills are something that I hope that I brought back with a little bit more humility and wisdom into the organization when I return to it. And the last thing I would say about what I learned at Mellon that you think I would have learned in the universities I worked for all those years before, but I really didn't. I learned that you have to think of yourself as a learner. I always used to say about the Mellon Foundation to our staff as we went and did this work and to our board, we are a learning foundation. We are not a learned foundation. We are a learning foundation. We're trying to evolve with this rapidly changing, extremely challenged uh, higher education landscape. I came in right after the Great Recession of 2009, 2010. We really had to rethink how we were doing things. Online education was coming. Um, racial reckoning in the United States was coming. And we really had to work with that. And so I encouraged us to be a learning foundation. And then to my surprise, when I came back to Emma Abu Dhabi, I found myself saying all the time the last three years, listen, we are, we are going to be okay during the pandemic. We can handle a greater emphasis on diversity and inclusion and equity and really live those values because we are a learning community. You'd think that this would be obvious to any university, but I think once you're a professor or administrator, or staff member, maybe you don't think quite the same way about that the way our students do. And I think it really helps when you're trying to do things like transform as we're transforming MOL Abu Dhabi to be also a more fully inclusive and equitable uh, learning and research institution. So that's where I would leave it. I really reached the conclusion that if we as administrators and faculty don't love to keep learning ourselves and can't project the joy of that, why should we expect it of our students? Very good point. I think I learned a great deal today. I'd like to thank you uh, for being our special guest. This was Mer Dr. Marriott Westerman, who is the Vice Chancellor at New York University Abu Dhabi. This concludes our episode of Higher Ed Without Borders. If you'd like to comment on today's show or any of the past shows that we have aired, or suggest a future guest, please go to www.higheredwithoutborders.com, the comments section. Yes, we do read our mail. And on behalf of Dr. Central Nathan, Edge Alliance, our production team, and of course, Dr. Westerman, thank you very much. And make sure to subscribe on your favorite app. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. 
EDU Alliance is an international higher education consulting firm with offices in Abu Dhabi since 2014 and Bloomington, Indiana since 2017. Nathan and Hoke, along with their team of experienced education professionals, have assisted over 30 universities in nine countries. If you wish to learn more about Higher Ed Without Borders, please go to our website at www.higheredwithoutborders.com. You will find details on our podcast, contact information, and EduAlliance's services. Thank you.